Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me this morning and for tuning back in as we experience some technical difficulties this morning in our live stream for church. We are pivoting and doing this another way. I'm just doing a Facebook live video. We're going to download it, post it on YouTube, send it out so that we can have the ministry of the word today and even take communion in a little bit. Uh, We're a church that loves to go deep in Christ and out of that place of deep formation and love in Christ to go wide in mission. And part of that is digging deeply into God's word. Uh, We believe that when we enter into God's word, he's actually talking to us. And so we want to take that opportunity to do that today. Uh, I invite you to have a Bible open uh, with you as we head into Uh, our series in the book of Joshua once again. um, We're continuing the series called Into the Unknown and picking up our text today is Joshua chapter 4 verse 19 to Joshua 5 verse 12. So if you have a Bible open, I would love to have you follow along with me as we get into God's word this morning and see what he wants to say to us. So this is Joshua chapter 4 beginning in verse 19. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Jebeah Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out and had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. 
When the, then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. Would you pray with me as we dive into God's word, what we've just read? Holy Spirit, would you come and would you do your work of illuminating our hearts and our minds that what we hear from you would lead us to love you more and glorify you more in our lives. Help us in our weakness. Help us in the midst of weakness in terms of this pandemic and the challenges we're facing. Speak a word to us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to briefly catch us up on what's been happening so far, last week we saw how as God is leading his people into the unknown, into the the new land that he's promised them, they're going into a land that is occupied by big, strong, well-fortified and armed people. And Israel is this nomadic people. I mean, they've been wandering the wilderness for 40 years. They've been living off of nothing but water and like wafer crackers for that amount of time. And you can imagine that the people of Canaan looking at a threat like Israel is probably not too worried. They like their chances. And the Jordan River is there. It's this safety net. It's it's a wall blocking Israel from entering the promised land. And it's at flood stage, which means there's no way for Israel to cross it. But as we saw last week, God has just done the impossible. He stopped the river and Israel crossed over on dry land and this just absolutely changes everything all of a sudden israel has the upper hand they have the element of surprise the hearts of the canaanites are now melting in fear and their courage is drained and when you see that moment isn't it just the perfect opportunity for israel to move in and charge their enemies it's interesting to note in our passage today that yahweh the lord doesn't do that In fact, he basically has his people pause and hold a really long worship service. They come through the Jordan and God tells them to build a statue to commemorate their crossing. And then he tells them to circumcise the new generation that hadn't been circumcised in the wilderness. And then they observe the Passover. I mean, this doesn't make any sense from an earthly military strategic perspective to pause while you have the element of surprise while your enemies are on their heels and then get this like circumcision is kind of a major thing you're even going to wound every single one of your soldiers just as they're supposed to go into battle it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense unless god has a bigger agenda than mere military conquest. What if God cares more about the formation of his people to worship him and to represent him in the world? 
And if that is indeed a concern of God, then the manner in which Israel enters the land would be just as important as the conquest itself. He doesn't just want a victory in battle. He wants a victory in the hearts of his people, which is arguably harder to pull off and more central to his purposes. And what we see in this text as Israel pauses for this sacred moment of worship is that there's really no use in Israel gaining the land if they lose themselves in the process. There's no use in them gaining the land if they lose themselves in the process. If they go in and conquer and settle down only to become like the people they've just conquered, that's not a victory. If they were to conquer and yet at the same time be conquered in a deeper way by the idols and the false gods of those they have conquered, that will be a far greater loss than than losing a few military battles. And it would also bring Israel within the crosshairs of God's judgment. And in our lives as followers of Jesus, as, as we have this unknown before us each and every day, of what we're going to do, how we're going to live, the decisions we're going to make, the trajectory of our life. There's no use stepping into the unknown of what lies before you if in doing so you lose touch with God and with yourself in the process. So how do we do that? How do we enter into the unknown without losing ourselves? That's that's what this text is calling us to pause and consider. And it's clear that as Israel goes into the unknown, God has them pause and and really it draws them into three things the first thing is he, he turns their focus to him and what he has done and through that they remember who they are as a people that that identity piece in order to send them into the land knowing who they're going to worship and set up to worship him the living god of the universe. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. I'm probably going to move us along quicker uh, than I would usually because this is a Facebook live setting. Um, So uh, let's consider that. God has them consider three things, who he is and what he's done, who they are as a people, and to position them to go into the land worshiping him. And you might think, well, you know, this sermon is titled Uh, Who are you? And so you might think that the best place to start in answering that question is ourselves. That the place to start is, you know, introspection, uh, self-discovery, self-development. But that's actually misguided. What we first need to know is the one in whose image we were made. We first need to know the one who made us. His identity lays the foundation for our own identities. And so our focus is brought to God, who he is and what he's done. This is what the Stones of Remembrance are all about. As they get ready to cross the Jordan earlier, God asks them, hey, have one man from each tribe grab a stone from the Jordan River. And then they come out and they pile those stones and make a statue so that in chapter 4, verse 21, it says, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them. Tell them that God did the impossible for us. Tell them that he dried up the Jordan and our people crossed on dry land. And then then tell them about how this even happened before at the Red Sea with Moses. And he delivered us from Egypt. Tell them. Pass it on to the next generation what God 
has done. He came through. This is all over the text. Again, after they're circumcised in their time of healing, they observe the Passover, which is all about enacting and remembering how God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Notice the importance of this people having a story and rehearsing their story and knowing their story. I feel like so many people today live a storyless life. We're so caught up in immediacy, in today, in instant gratification, in, in, in instant uh, Instagram, in instant everything. And we actually sever ourselves from our story and our past. And what God does is he has them pause and remember their story. Remember who he is. Remember who he has done. And folks, let me just say, our story goes way back beyond our own lifetime. I mean, this is hard for us modern Western individualistic people. My story, you know, began in 1989 when I was born. Wrong. Biblically, when we believe in Jesus and we come into the, the community of the church, all of a sudden, our story goes way back into the pages of this book, that I can read this book as my own experience, and it becomes my story. We have this long story of God's faithfulness to us, and that's why what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross matters to me. It's part of my story. In fact, it could be part of your story, too. It's part of everyone's story because he came to die and save everyone from sin and death. And what this text is calling us to remember is that we need these holy pauses daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, th those rhythms of devotion and reflection of church and sacraments calling us to worship and calling us to be renewed in the knowledge and experience of God, to remember our story, which is his story. One of my favorite thinkers is Blaise Pascal, and his book, Passe, has earned a permanent place on my nightstand at home. He was a brilliant mathematician who grew up in a nominally Christian family. I mean, I mean, he, it was a Catholic family. Uh, you know, they went to church, but it didn't really mean much to him until one night, as he read the Gospels, he had an experience where God met him in a profound way. He had this encounter experience. And eight years later, when Pascal died, a little worn out piece of paper was found sewn on the inside of his favorite jacket. And here's a part of what it said. It said, the year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past 10 at night until half past midnight, fire, and he wrote it in all capital letters, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God, joy, 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 tears of joy. May I not forget your words. Amen. You see, that little piece of paper that he sewed in the inside of his coat 
was like those stones from the Jordan River. They were a token to remember, to, to speak truth to himself. And, and yes, we want to remind the next generation, but sometimes we need to set things in place to remind our future selves, to remind future Andrew, to remind future Bob, to re- remind future Janet, whoever you are. Because a time will come when faith seems to wane and you walk through dryness and darkness And we need to remember the times when God encountered us with the palpable sense of his reality and showed us his love, showed us his grace. We need to do that too. We need to take a note from Blaise Pascal and remember in our own lives when we have met God and experienced his goodness to us. Those 12 stones that Israel set up, they were not an idol. They were a signpost to remind them. This is our God. This is what he's like. This is what he's done. He's powerful when we're powerless. He's faithful even when we doubt. He's acted to rescue us from slavery to Egypt, from slavery to wandering in the wilderness forever. And he's rescued us from slavery to sin and death through the cross of Christ. He pulls off these miraculous rescues. And the key to moving into the unknown without losing yourself is to know who God is and what he's done for you and what he continues to do for you. Now, this also brings our attention in this text, our attention in this text to God's own ongoing actions. And look at verse 11 and 12 of chapter 5. So now we're skipping really to the end of the text. There's an interesting detail here. It says that on the day after the Passover, the manna, that food that God had provided for them in the wilderness, the manna manna stopped. And it says they ate of the fruit or the produce of the land. And that's repeated three times in these two verses. They ate the fruit of the land. And this was also part of God's promise long ago. And as, the ma- as miraculous as the manna was, it was meant to get them to the land where they might enjoy its produce. And when you think about it, this is signaling to us not just the miraculous provisions of God, but also the mundane, the mundane provisions of God. And they're no less important than his miraculous deeds towards us. As many of you know, my wife and I, we just had our fourth child. And I'm using uh, this opportunity to get some maintenance done. And so this week in our minivan, I changed the cabin air filter in our minivan. Wow, what an extraordinary thing, the cabin air filter. You probably didn't even know that existed. Neither did I until someone told me, hey, this has a cabin air filter. Now, I put in that work. I I did something to sustain and help the life of our family because let me tell you now with three with three kids and now with four kids there is some serious contamination that happens in that van. But as we drive our van in the coming weeks, I guarantee you none of my kids are going to suddenly exclaim, "Wow, the air, it's so clean in here. Thanks daddy for changing the cabin air filter." Absolutely not. They don't even know it exists, and yet it's really important. Now, I wonder how many cabin air filter type things there are in the universe. How many things are there that God created that are governed and sustained by him that without them we would be totally done for and without which there wouldn't be you know, an earth to speak of or people to do the speaking for that matter? 
right? How many of us wake up in the morning thankful for gravity? How many of you wake up in the morning thankful for the mitochondria in your cells or the orbit of the moon around the earth? I mean, there is this miracle of daily and mundane provision that is also part of what God is doing. And that we need to give thanks for. I mean, Thanksgiving is coming up next weekend. But we are called to be a people of constant Thanksgiving who pause to give thanks to our Creator who created us, who redeemed us, who sustains us, and who will complete us. Now, we need to remember God, His provision in the miraculous and in the mundane. Um, but we also need to remember who we are, and, and that's part of this pause. Israel, in pausing before they go into the land, right? And, and you know, a military warfare state of mind, it's all about, you know, being macho and taking and, you know, being the strongest. But they pause intentionally to remember that they are a people rescued by God. If God is the rescuer, if that's what he's doing, we are the rescued. We're the ones he has graced. Uh, he's gotten hold of us and lifted us out of the things that enslaved us. Over and over and over again in the book of Joshua, God is the main actor. He's the mover. He's the shaker. He's the king leading his people. And the people are receivers of his benefits. And there's nothing so central to the Christian identity as this, that, that element of receptivity, that we're not takers. We're receivers. And all of our activity in the Christian life needs to flow from receptivity of the gifts of God, of receiving his love, of receiving his grace, his forgiveness, his presence, his justice, that then we return a lived response of embodying and displaying those same things he's graced us with. Now, another aspect of who we are that we're reminded of here is our proneness to wander into sin and unbelief. Look at verses four and seven of chapter four, four to seven of chapter five. Um, it brings in the reason why they needed to be circumcised in the wilderness. And, and it's this. In verse six, it says the Israelites had moved about in the wilderness forty years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had uh, had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. They had a past of wandering, of complaining, of grumbling, of unbelief. And this isn't brought here as a guilt trip. Uh, Joshua isn't trying to beat them over the head with their failure, but he is keeping them in humble awareness of it. Knowing our dark spots, knowing knowing our shadow sides, knowing our, our tendencies, that lead us away from God are so crucial to walking with God because it's when you're aware of your failure, you're way less likely to repeat it. And those very places where we failed can actually become the workshop of God's transforming power in our lives. They're the very places where he wants to display his power and his glory. And so often we want to deny, deny that anything's wrong, deny that we have flaws. But here's God just saying, hey, you have this flaw. Come back to me. Lean on me. Depend on me. Believe in me. See, Israel has been rescued by God, but they're still prone to wander, just like we've been rescued by the cross of Christ. We still sin. 
And yet God's grace is such that even in their sin and unbelief, they are still God's people. They are still set apart. That's the whole point of circumcision. And that's that's another part of our identity we need to see here is that we are a people set apart by God in the covenant. This is the meaning of circumcision. I mean, why would you injure yourselves before going into battle? Why would you make yourself vulnerable to attack when your army, you know, has this 10-day period of healing because you belong to God and he told you to renew the sign of his covenant with you? And, And let me just say, you know, the language of covenant is lost on us today. It's kind of an old dusty word that we don't often take off the shelf. And the closest example that really we have today is the covenant of marriage. But even then, our modern Uh, view of marriage is so off that it's not even helpful but basically what what marriage is supposed to be this covenant and and what which is really a signpost pointing to god's covenant with his people it's this binding binding permanent relational commitment and partnership that's what a covenant is it's not just oh i feel like being with you because you make me feel good so we'll try this out for a little while it's no i am going to bind myself to you And we're going to do this thing together. And, you know, this thing's not going to end. That's what God did with Israel. He bound himself to this people. He claimed them for himself. And circumcision was the visible sign that Israel had been claimed by God in this covenant. And that they would commit to God to walk in his ways. And so before going into battle, they needed to know they belong to God. And to go into the land bearing the visible sign of their covenant identity. So what about us? As you journey into the unknown, as you wake up tomorrow morning, let me suggest to you that the question of knowing whose you are is just as important as knowing who you are. Knowing whose you are is just as important as knowing who you are. So you're not going out into the world tomorrow when you wake up floating out there on your own. Don't buy the lie of individualism that says it's just you in this world and you have no ties, no supports, no anchoring or grounding for your life. You do. If you're a believer in Jesus, you belong to Christ. And through belonging to him, you belong to his people, the church. Not like the church, you know, owns you and can tell you everything to do and and boss you around, but you're joined to the church. You belong. You have a family, a community. You have people to love you at the weakest and bear your burdens with you. It's key to our identity. Our identity is that we are rescued by God. We are prone to wander in sin and unbelief, and yet we are his chosen, set-apart, holy people. Holy because he is holy. Holy in the holiness of Jesus, not in our own holiness. And so now I want to circle back to our original question. Why is it so important that they hold a worship service as they're about to go into battle? I mean, two things that we usually wouldn't put together. And it's because of this. It's this third point around worship. Israel isn't just meant to enter the land and gain the land. They are to do so as people who worship the Lord. These acts of remembrance are about worship. 
not just remembering, oh yeah, that happened, that's so great, but worshiping the one who made it happen. They are to enter the land firmly grounded in their allegiance to God. And get this, this is so important. Because they are entering a land that itself is full of idols and false worship. We know from other places in the Old Testament that Canaanite culture was full of all kinds of evil and destructive practices. Um, it begins, we first hear of a Canaanite people, the Amorites in Genesis 15, where God already tells Abraham way back then that he's got his eye on these people and, and the horrible things they're doing. And if you turn back in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 18 to 20, it's two chapters of just all these laws of about not doing horrendous things, things like sacrificing your children to Molech, who was a Canaanite god, things like not sleeping with your family members or with animals, uh, rules about abstaining from all kinds of perversions and destructive ways to live. And that list of laws begins by saying in Leviticus 18, verse 3, you must not do as they did in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where you're going to live. In other words, all these laws flow to the concern that Israel is entering into this land where all this stuff is totally normal. This is, how, this is what you do. You sacrifice your children. You engage in all this perverse activity. They're going into a land full of idols and, and, and sin and Let's be honest, these idols appeal to some of humanity's most basic fallen cravings. Our enslavement to sex. Our desire for power and control and domination and war. That's the religious climate they were entering and God is sending them in as a tool of his judgment. And here's the risk God is taking. What if Israel compromises? What if they compromise and, and give up their allegiance to him and go after the gods of the Canaanites. And this is why God has them pause to remember who they are so that they don't lose themselves if they go in. And this is why God gives such specific instructions about what to do with the people and the wealth of the towns that they conquer. In, in a lot of cases in Joshua, we see that they're told to totally destroy them. And let me just take a, a moment to say God isn't uh, telling them to kill people for the sake of killing people. I mean, this is really hard when we get into the conquest narrative of the Bible. It wasn't about killing people for the sake of killing people. It was about dismantling the destructive influence of idolatry. It wasn't about killing people. It was about killing the thing that's really killing people. False worship of idols and the chaotic and violent way of life that flows from it. I mean, the battles in Joshua are, are really the earthly side of a greater spiritual battle happening for the heart of humanity. Now, I know some of us moderns, you know, you won't be satisfied with that rationale for the conquest, but it's there. And it was a chapter in God's plan to redeem the world. It was a limited conquest. God using the mechanisms of that time and that place for a specific purpose then. Now, I want you to think about your life in the world you live in. As we head back to work, if you're you know, tuning in from Zoom, working at home, whatever it is, the world really is in our house through the internet in, in an incredibly new way. But just as in, uh, Israel was going into a land full of idols, it's the same with us. 
I mean, don't think that our world has been sanitized of the spiritual or that people no longer worship idols. There are so many idols at play in our culture. Our culture worships sex, comfort, power, money, uh, consumerism, control, independence. And we're called to be different. We're called to worship God alone. And when we enter into these sacred pauses of remembrance and worship, God uses them to reorient us. We don't often think of worship in that way. We, we tend to think of worship as expressive, right? We're expressing our praise to God because he's worthy. But there are byproducts to our worship. And one of them is that worship reorients us. That when you worship in the presence of the Holy One, it changes you. When you're in the presence of beauty itself, himself, or truth himself, or love himself, you are changed. Worship is formative. It reorients us. It, it clears the fog. And it brings us back to the center. It reorders our lives around Jesus and his gospel so that we move back out into the world renewed to live for him rather than to settle into compromise and complacency. Friends, this is why. This is why you need sacred pauses. Daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, because each and every day we're walking into Canaan. Or it's coming to us through our screens and, and we get pulled, right? We're being formed by so many other things. And, and chances are, you know... I, I, and I know this is going to be so ironic, the fact that I'm saying this over Facebook. Chances are you're taking in way more YouTube and Instagram and Facebook than you're taking in God's word in your life. So how is God going to compete with all the things forming you? We need to pay attention to what's forming us. We can control that. We can control what we want to form us and what story we're going to live by how we enter the, into the awareness of who God is, who we are, and what he's called us to be. And now, even though it doesn't make earthly sense, God calls Israel to pause, to worship, to remember, because he doesn't want them to lose touch with what it means to be God's covenant people. Now, sadly, and, and this is a major spoiler alert, Israel does compromise. They follow God for a time, for, for Joshua's lifetime. They're faithful, they're, they're steadfast. Uh, but after Joshua dies, then the new generation doesn't worship God. And then we get into the next book of the Bible, the book of Judges, which the, the, the mantra of Judges is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And they fail. So what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do in our lives when we fail? Because let's face it, we fail. I sin every day. My heart goes after things that aren't God. My love is disordered. Sometimes I love the wrong things. Sometimes I love the right things, but in the wrong way. What am I supposed to do? We need to look to Christ. We need to look to Jesus Christ to reorder us. Because the only one who can truly change us and empower us to persevere in our worship is him and his spirit working in us it's him because he himself 
didn't compromise. He is Israel as Israel should have been. He didn't give in to the pressure of idolatry. From all eternity, he loved and worshipped and served the Father. And in life, he obeyed the Father even to the point of death. Friends, it's all about Christ. As we go into the unknown and as we don't want to lose ourselves, the key isn't focusing on our identity. The key is focusing on the identity of the king and who he is, what he's done for us, and how he continues to sanctify us and shape us in his image. And it's as we trust in him, as we lean into him, as, as we give thanks for his goodness and behold him and worship him, that he continues to shape us as a people who will give allegiance to the true and living God and serve him faithfully and live for his glory. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.